St. James Lutheran Church. I'm really glad that you're joining us this morning. A couple of announcements, uh, a real big announcement too. Uh, The first one is uh, thanks for your emails and your calls about the uh, audio problems. Uh, We are aware that there's uh, issues with the audio and we're working on it and hopefully today it's better. This is always technology is, it's always a process, it's a work in progress and so uh, thanks for being patient. And also, thanks for letting us know if you have any sort of issues. Uh, we are working on them. And second of all, and this is the big news, 
uh, two weeks from today, we are planning on reopening in-person services here at St. James. We're real excited about this, and we want to be careful, and we want to be wise, uh, but I know a bunch of us are excited to be able to get back together and worship uh, with each other in person. And so uh, a few quick notes about that. First of all, uh, we're going to limit the number of people who can be in the sanctuary uh, to about 25% of sanctuary capacity. Uh, we want to be safe, and we want to be uh, loving to our neighbors. And so what that means is we're going to have multiple services. We're going to start off at least with uh, three services at 7.45 a.m., 9 o'clock a.m., which is the normal time, and then a service at 10.15 a.m. But in order to uh, make sure that we don't have too many people in the sanctuary, uh, we're going to ask you if you can sign up on the website. Now here in the next few days, if you go to the church's website, stjamesglencarbon.org, you'll be able to sign up for what service you and your family or your friends want to go to. And so do it there, and if for whatever reason you're not comfortable signing up on the website or if you just don't want to mess with internet stuff, uh, give me a call on my phone. That phone number will be on the church website, and um, I'll sign you up for the service uh, that you can be in. Also, we will still continue the live stream at 9 o'clock every Sunday. So if you come to the 9 o'clock service, it'll probably be a little bit different. The format will be uh, just the way that we're standing and and, uh, moving in the sanctuary will be a touch different. Also, uh, we will be moving, we we will still have the adult Bible study via Zoom, but we're going to move that to 11.30 a.m. from 10.30 a.m. to accommodate that 10.15 service. But we will still continue doing that, as well as the Wednesday evening Bible study as well. We're going to ask everybody who comes wear masks, and I know that uh, for some people the masks thing is kind of a a slight to your freedom as an American. I understand that, Uh, but out of love for our neighbors, we would ask that you would wear a mask to the service. If you don't have a mask, the church will provide you one. When you sign up on the website, there'll be a place to indicate whether you need a mask provided for you or not. But just right now, as we start out here, We want to be as safe and as concerned uh, for our neighbors as possible. So if you have any questions about that, please let me know. One more thing really quick. If you are uh, elderly, if you are at risk at all for any sort of sickness, I want to encourage you that it's okay to stay home, that we will continue doing the live stream. Uh, You can come and meet me for communion whenever you'd like. But if it's safe for you right now to stay home, that's completely fine. The fact that we're reopening the services, I want want you to think of this as something in addition to what we're doing now, in addition to the live stream. As time goes on, I think we'll all become more and more comfortable with where things are at, and you yourself will know uh, that it's safe to come back to church when it's time and encourage you to be comfortable with that and know that you're not missing out I, in a sense, you are missing out, but you're not missing out on God's favor for you. You're not missing out on God's will for you if you do the wise thing and remain safe. Okay, more on that later. There'll be uh, information on the website. I'll make another announcement with some more details next week. But June 14th, we're excited about uh, having more and more people here in the sanctuary as time goes on. All right, let's begin worship. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. 
O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. We pour out our souls to you because by our own efforts we have failed. Nothing we have tried has worked. We have tried again and again and still we have failed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. Save us from the embarrassment of our failure. Save us from envying those who have apparently succeeded. Grant us some signs of success that we not always be ashamed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. You know our need. You know our struggles, our brokenness, our sins. You know that without your mercy we can do nothing. Grant us mercy for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all your sin. Hear the word of the Gospel from John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Amen. The psalm for this morning is from Psalm uh, Psalm 25. The first part of Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. And teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. For it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. The Acts reading this morning is no surprise, this being Pentecost Sunday, where we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church of Jesus Christ for spiritual gifts. It is from Acts 2, that first Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this multitude, they came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares in the prophet Joel, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The gospel reading is from John chapter 7. Jesus in this reading, very, very short reading, tells about the coming of the Holy Spirit. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Of the very Godhead come to 
Epistle reading and sermon text for this morning are going to pick back up in Romans chapter 6. We're going to read the first three verses again, but then uh, this week we're going to continue on through verse 11. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's reset just a little bit and talk about where we've come so far. Romans 5, there's two ways of being human. In Adam, completely natural, you're that way by being born, but it leads to unrighteousness, leads to sin, it leads ultimately to slavery. It's a big theme in Romans 5 through 8. Ultimately, it leads to death. The other way, in Christ, which leads to life and grace and righteousness and ultimately ruling over all of creation. Remember, we talked about that in Romans 5. That happens completely unnaturally from outside of us. How do we get there? For Paul, the first step is the old person has to be killed. There's only one way to get out from slavery, ultimately, and that's to die. A little bit more on that in just a few minutes because he's going to reiterate that theme in just a few seconds in Romans 6, 1 through 11. How does that happen? Well, in the story of the whole world, which Paul retells in Romans 5 through 8, how does Israel escape from slavery? Well, they have to die. They don't actually die in that part of the story. This is fulfilled in Jesus' death. But sucked between death by drowning and death by being slaughtered by an army, God takes them through their own baptism, through their own exodus, through the waters, the waters of death, and leads them to new life. Jesus himself fulfills this by going through his own exodus. Remember, we talked about this last week. His own path through the waters of death. Jesus calls this too. He calls this a baptism. Tells James and John, do you even know about the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Talking about his death. Jesus goes through baptism and exodus to gain new life for us. How do we link with that? How do we link to Jesus' exodus? How do you and I get the results, the benefits of Jesus' baptism? The answer for Paul here in Romans 6 is through our baptism. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with Jesus by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, we too might walk in newness of life. And again, just real quick to touch a, a base that I touched last week briefly. How does this work? How is baptism able to do this? Well, we know it is doing this. It's, we are buried with him by baptism. How does it work? I know this is difficult for those of us modern Westerners who are used to thinking of spiritual things and physical things as being completely separate. This is not the way reality works, though. God, by the power of his word, can use baptism to do whatever he wants it to do. He commands us to be baptized in Matthew 28. He invests the authority of washing, the authority of regeneration, Titus, the authority of salvation, 1 Peter, into baptism. We should trust him that he's able to use physical things to accomplish these. Remember, when you you think about baptism, you're not thinking about water being poured. There's definitely water there. It's not baptism without water. But you're thinking about the authority of God's word mixed in with the water that accomplishes these great things. My My favorite illustration of this is the illustration that some of you have heard me say many times about my daughter Reeve. When I hug Reeve, I'm doing it because she as a physical person and I as a physical person 
need to show each other physical love for it to be real love. Now, when I hug Reeve, is it a symbol of my fatherhood with her? Is that like a symbol of her being my daughter? No, it's actually actualizing our relationship. It's manifesting our relationship. It's not symbolizing it as though parenthood is some sort of like concept that you have in your head. It's not an intellectual concept. It's a whole person. It's not even biological completely. It's a part of it. Part of it's in my head. Part of it's biological. It's bigger than that though. And when I hug grieve, I'm saying the same thing that God is saying to us in baptism is that all of you needs to be saved by all of me. It's not, baptism is not a symbol of salvation. Baptism is not a symbol of grace. Baptism is not even a gateway to grace. Baptism is itself the love, just like my hugging Reeve is itself love. This is how this works. Okay, so what's the payout of this? If baptism, the word of God for our salvation, mixed up with water, if it's able to do this, what's the payout? Let's go back to verse 5. For if we've been united with him, this is the number one payout in Romans 6, is baptism unites us to God in Jesus Christ. It unites us to Jesus so that when God looks at Jesus, he sees us, and when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Just like when I hug Reeve, it unites me to her. It manifests that relationship we have. Baptism manifests, actualizes, signs, seals, and delivers the promise of union with Jesus. Which means that when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. Back to verse 5. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we also shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now Paul's going to explain what he means. Granted that we're united with Christ, even when Jesus died on the cross, we were up there dying with him. When Jesus rose from the dead, we were rising from the dead with him. What does that mean? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be, check it out, enslaved to sin. Remember what we talked about last week? The only way to escape slavery is to die. That's why he says this in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We had to die in order to escape slavery. And we were killed along with Jesus when he died on the cross. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, if we have escaped that realm of slavery by dying and no longer being subject to the tortures and the manipulations, the diabolical machinations, the evil plans of the enemy, and the sinful world in our flesh, we're no longer subject to that realm. It's no longer an authority over us. Where does that put us now? We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Jesus. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Our death in Christ, once for all, it's done. We never have to go back there. The rest of chapter 6 is going to be spent unpacking that notion that we don't have to go back. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I told you about last week, unfortunately having to disagree with him about a point, says this like this. There's a road to the middle of two fields. One field is the realm of the enemy, the realm of slavery to sin, the realm of unrighteousness. The other field is the realm of Christ, with grace and life and happiness in us, ruling and reigning over that field with Christ. On the other side of the field, the enemy calls to us, wants us to come back over and be enslaved again. But he can't actually get across the road. 
There's a huge barrier there. He cannot touch us. The only way we can be affected by that, well, let me stop there and say, let's save that for next week when we get to verses 12 and following. For the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God permanently. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There are three things I want to point out about sin and its rule over us in this text that we've touched upon briefly, but I want to unpack them. And by doing so, I want to transition from the notion of dying to sin to the notion of being alive to God. This will be the third point. And that will get us into next week. We start talking about sanctification. And what does it mean to be holy and to live a holy life as Christians here and now? But before we leave this text, before we leave verses 1 through 11, make me th- let, let me make three quick points about Paul's notion of what sin and its rule over us is and why we need death, we need to die to get out from under it. First of all, the sin problem here is us. The sin problem isn't anybody else. It's we who have to die, not other people. It's we who have to die, not other things. Paul doesn't say, you're enslaved to sin. Well, let's get rid of these other parts of your life that highlight that slavery. He says, no, actually, in baptism, you must die. People leave jobs all the time because, you know, bad boss or they're not happy with their pay or they're happy with, not, with their, not happy with their circumstances at work. And I certainly, you know, that I'm not telling you that it's wrong to leave a job because you have a bad boss or because you have a ba- bad pay or bad circumstances. I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, that the problem ultimately of your personal satisfaction and happiness will not be solved by changing your job circumstances. It's not your old job that needs to die. It's you. People leave marriages because of bad, bad spouses, bad circumstances. And again, I'm not going to say that there's no reason to leave a bad marriage. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is, is if you think by eliminating the existence of that ex-spouse from your life that you can achieve the realm of grace and righteousness and happiness. It's not possible. It's not them that needs to die. It's us that needs to die. I realized that some of you, I, I realized that a, a couple of weeks ago I was telling this, my story to somebody and a lot of you have heard this story before. But I was talking about the pastor at the Baptist church where I was fired and I was explaining what happened And I used a line that I've used hundreds of times before. Angela's heard it a bunch. My friends have heard it a lot. I said, it's hard for me to talk about this person without starting to feel bitter in my heart against this person. And certainly true. But I realized, this is a couple weeks ago, I realized that what I was doing was I was subtly transitioning the blame for my sin to that person. It's not that person's fault that I respond in sinfulness to sinful situations. It's not them that needs to die. It's me that, needs, that needed to die. It's me that needs baptized. Look, remember the last week we talked about the examples I gave you of people who planned and plotted their own deaths, didn't manage to pull them off, but they tried to fake their own deaths? Suicide, we call that, trying to fake your own death. Well, one thing that they got right was that they realized that it's me who needs to die. Like, I can't, if, 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 if I'm crushed by massive debt, I can't go kill off all my creditors. I can't kill off the entire financial system. And even if I could kill off one of my creditors, 
me being who I am, bad business practices, uh, out of control spending, I'm just going to get in debt again. If I have a prison sentence, I can't go kill off the entire judicial system. It's not the problem. The problem is me. Even Aleister Crowley, remember that story I told you about him faking his own death to get out of a relationship with a girl. Even he was wise enough to see, like, I can't kill that girl. Like, maybe I could kill the girl, but there's going to be other girls. The problem isn't the girl. The problem is me. We have to die. What Paul is saying here is that the sin problem is too drastic. It's too big to blame on other people. Even our idols. We can't blame sex or money or pleasure or power. It's not, that, it's not that there's something wrong with sex or money or pleasure or power that we need to get rid of it. And I'm not saying that it's not appropriate at times if you struggle with a particular idol to step away from it and turn your back on it. And some, of, some of us, we need to do that permanently. But what I am saying is that the problem isn't with the idol itself. The problem is with us being alive to sin. We need baptized so that we can be dead to sin. So the first problem is that the sin problem is us. The second is the sin problem is total. The sin problem is pervasive. We can't be improved. We have to die. Paul's going to talk about the law in Romans 7. One of the points of talking about the law after talking about baptism is to make this point is that you can't be repaired. There's not a part of you that you know, is really good and let's hold on to that part and we'll try and work around it and fix the, everything else that you just kind of messed up with and this problem over here, and this problem over here. But these parts are good, we'll leave them there. No, we actually have to completely die. There's not a single part of us that's survivable outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. A lot of you know uh, Kevin and Tina, who uh, recently uh, bought a house in the area, a really beautiful, but really sort of a quirky, mid-century, modern, you know, 1960s, a little bit of a Brady Bunch-style house, which has really got some really terrifically cool features uh, these long, low rooms with wide, long windows looking out over the lake. It also had some other less attractive Brady Bunch type features inside the house. Well, they bought this house and they thought, well, let's save the good stuff and remodel uh, the bad stuff. And after they got into it, they realized the problems with this house are actually too systemic. They're too big. It's not going to be viable to save even parts of it. And so they've torn that house down and they're rebuilding. And that's kind of where we're at as human beings. There's not a part of us that you can say, I'm doing good here, but let's work on this spot over here. We need to die. This is what the old timers called total depravity. And what they didn't mean was that every single thing that you always think and say and do as an unbeliever is completely evil. What they meant, though, is that every single part of every human being, even the stuff that we would call good, is tainted by sin to such an extent that it can't survive. It has to die. I apologize. I'm going to give you another example from C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce because I just read it recently, and it's really good. The people in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, many of whom have chosen not to go to heaven and have chosen hell, have done so for reasons that you and I might think are actually good reasons. They're noble reasons. There's one scene in the story where a woman has decided, I, don't want, I, I want to go to hell, I don't want to go to heaven because of love for her husband. She can't imagine a world where he doesn't belong to her, where she doesn't own him. I've cared for him so many years, she says. I've poured so much of my life into him. I've made him a good person. Like, he needs me. 
I can't, I can't imagine living in a world where he doesn't need me, where I'm not his first and foremost love. This is what she chooses to abandon glory for, to hold on to this good thing, marital love. And in the story, the narrator asks a very, very wise character in the book uh, named George MacDonald, asks him, what seems strange, that love between one family member to another family member would stand as a barrier to righteousness. And here's what George MacDonald says. Basically, yes, it is good, love between family members. But you've got to remember that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Not, not all of our sins, certainly, like filthy rags. But all of our good things are actually tainted as they are by sin, have to die, and must be healed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's what George MacDonald says. Look, there's only one good. Family love is good, right? But actually, it's not by itself. There's only one good, and that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to God and bad when it turns from him. And the higher and mightier it is in the natural order, which family love is so high in God's created order of beautiful things, the higher and mightier it is, the more demonic it will be if it rebels. It's not out of bad mice or bad fleas you make demons, but out of bad archangels. See what he's saying? Even the good things in our life, when we value those as good things in themselves, when they become idols, they damn us. Even those good things have to die. Here's the good news, though. Later on in this conversation, George MacDonald says nothing. He, he, repeating what he had just said, nothing, not even the best and the noblest thing can go on as it now is. Even love for family, even love for church, even love for reading the Bible. Nothing about us can go on as it now is. However, the good news, the gospel is, and here's a transi- transition point in the sermon, Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial about us, will not be raised again if it submits, check out this language, if it submits to death. It's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 6. Every single part of us has to die. But the good news is, is if it is controlled, if it comes under the authority of the death of Jesus Christ, if we have been united to Jesus in his death, We will also be united to Jesus in his resurrection. And that means that there's not anything about us, even the lowest and worst things about us, will someday be redeemed and made beautiful. There's not one pleasure that you had that God will not someday repair and make whole and give you more than you could ever want of it. Remember the end of chapter 5. Wherever sin abounds, grace hyperabounds. By dying in Christ, there's not a single part of us, there's not a single relationship that you have now that you will not get back fourfold in the new creation if it dies in Jesus Christ. If you hold on to it, if you make it an idol, it will certainly drag you down to hell. But God is giving every every cent that you own in value now, if you will let that die in your baptism, God will give you that cent back and millions and millions more besides in the new creation. The gospel is that powerful. So, verse 2, sin. The sin problem is us. The sin problem is total. And then lastly and quickly, the sin problem is unreal. Now, I guess in a certain sort of slang sense, that's true. You know, sin is unreal. Like, wow, this coronavirus is unreal. But, but I actually mean something different than that. And Paul means something different too. 
What Paul means is that it's not real. I know I just went to great lengths to talk about how horrible sin is. But listen to what he says. It's not actual. You've died to it. I know you're saying to yourself, and I say to myself when I read Romans 6 every time, and Paul's going to say when he gets into Romans 7, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like I'm controlled by my sinful desires. It can, feels like I say things that I shouldn't say without even like being able to control it. My thoughts are just out there, and I have no ability to rein them into righteousness. Paul is saying, ignore that. Don't think about that. What you need to do, verse 11, you also, because Jesus died and rose from the dead and you and I were baptized into him, you also, we also must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate reality. There are two steps here to Christian sanctification. Step two we're going to get to next week. But step one is this. You have to know, you have to reckon yourself, this is what the King James translation of this verse says, you have to reckon yourselves, you have to consider yourselves, you have to think of yourselves, you have to know that the ultimate reality of you is not slave to sin. Your ultimate reality is dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Well, well how does that help? More next week. But for right now, let me just give you this illustration. So, uh, Kate and Reeve, uh, sorry, Kate and Angela uh, recently read uh, Daphne du Maurier's uh, uh, classic novel, Rebecca. Uh, maybe some of you know it from the 1940 uh, Hitchcock film uh, entitled Rebecca, about this uh, girl. She's the main character. The narrator is this uh, poor, familyless girl who, through circumstances I won't go into now, uh, meets this fantastically wealthy man, Maxim de Winter, and she marries him. He, asks, she, he falls in love with her and asks her to marry him, and they move to his really beautiful house, his beautiful estate with tons of servants and tons of property. This young married woman, though, is terrorized and terrified by the housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, who manipulates her, who willingly and intentionally terrorizes her to control her. And she, just the, 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 the wife, just can't do anything. She tries to hide from her. She cows before her. When you're reading this book, you're thinking, like, just tell her to get away. Just tell her that you're in charge. And so what's the problem, right? Is that her old self, the, the, the self where she's poor without family, he met her as she was a, a, a poorly paid companion to a rich woman as she traveled throughout Europe. That self has died. It no longer exists. She is now the owner and mistress of this massive estate. Her problem is, is that that's the reality, but she's living in an unreal world. She has not yet reckoned herself as the mistress of that estate. She's not yet reckoned that she is in charge and that the one who is trying to enslave her is actually not in charge. She's not yet reckoned that she has the authority to say, in the name of my husband, in my own name, by being united to my husband, leave me alone. You're fired. That's the problem with you and I as Christians. Our main struggle with sin is that we have not yet reckoned that we are dead to sin. We refuse to believe the real, and we cave in to believe the unreal. And so Paul says, your reality is your baptism into Jesus Christ. You've died to sin. It no longer has dominion over you. You know how the story turns? You know what the turning point in the story is? She has this moment where 
she realizes, I'm doubting that my husband loves me. There's different circumstances in the book that lead to this. I won't go into that here. She doubts that her husband loves her. There's a moment, though, when she's com- she becomes completely convinced through her husband's actions that her husband loves her, and it infuses her with this boldness to say to Mrs. Danvers, you're no longer in charge here. You will do what I tell you to do. I rule over you. You will no longer terrorize me. You will no longer intimidate me. You will no longer manipulate me. That's what Paul means when he says, reckon yourself dead to sin, but also alive to God. Consider yourselves, through your baptism into Jesus Christ, to be alive to God. You and I, those of us who are Christians, those of you who are Christians, you are related to God in such a way that all of him belongs to all of you by virtue of being united to Jesus Christ. You own the whole world. You own everything. Sin has no more right to control you. It has no more right to enslave you. You are in charge. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. Reckon yourselves alive to God in Jesus Christ. I realize this leaves a ton of questions still unanswered. How do I activate that? How does reckoning myself dead to sin and alive to God actually pay out in me escaping the slavery of sin? Uh, Come back next week, and the next week's sermon will be about this. How do we do this? How do we get out from underneath the slavery of sin by, like Maxim de Winter's wife, reckoning ourselves dead to our old past, dead to the old human, and now alive to this new reality that we are the mistress of the estate, that in Jesus Christ, God loves us. Let me just say right now, though, if the problem is, if your inability, if my inability to reckon ourselves alive to God is that we have, like the girl in the story, become unaware that our husband loves us. Go to your husband. Go to God. Get into his word this week and just soak in his love for you. Become incredibly aware that he gave up everything for you. That he, God allows himself to be shamed before the world to unite himself to us. God himself, God himself allows himself to be taunted by the enemy in order to unite himself to us. That's how much love he has for you. Go to that love. Gaze at that love. Bask in that love. And that will be the gateway to being alive to that love in Jesus Christ. Alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we pray this morning uh, through the truth of Romans 6, 1 through 11, that you would make us incredibly aware of the reality of our relationship to you in Jesus Christ. And that you would make the unreality of our, of our, for those of us who are Christians, the unreality of our faux slavery to sin. Make that painfully aware to us that we are no longer slaves to sin. There's no reason to go back to that side of the road anymore. This is going to take a work of the Holy Spirit because everything our eyes, everything our brains, everything our emotions, everything our experiences say is that we still are slaves to sin. Make this new reality this baptism reality, this in Jesus reality, wake up our hearts to believe it. I want to pray this morning uh, for uh, everybody in this country who is experiencing the pangs and fallout of what's happened this past week with the death of an innocent black man and the riots which apparently have resulted. Uh, Father, uh, save us by the power of your kingdom. Our temptation here is to turn to social media. Our temptation is to turn to politics. Our temptation is to turn to self-righteousness. 
imagining that we're right and we can't understand all them people who don't agree with us acting the way they do. Humble us before the foot of your cross. Help us to repent of our sin. The sin of the, 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 the sin that each one of us has in our heart of the desire to turn to violence when we want our way. Help us to repent of the racism in each one of our hearts. To not cover it over with middle class self-righteousness. But to confess it before you and ask you to forgive it. And wash it clean out of our hearts. Call all people to yourself in Jesus Christ. Unite your church. Do not let the enemy with his destruction and division and hatred in everyone's hearts divide your people. May the Christian church not cave in to the demands of social media and grandstanding and political, political game playing, but help us stand as a beacon that the God of unity, the God of love, the God of peace, the God who reigns over the kingdom of righteousness, the God who died and rose from the dead, is the Lord of the universe. God, forgive us and give us repentance for losing sight of that reality and pull us up into your reality, especially your Christian church. Lord, this is a good weekend to call upon your Holy Spirit. Every weekend is good, but especially Pentecost weekend to say, come Holy Spirit, renew our hearts. Come Holy Spirit, renew your creation. In Jesus' name, amen.
One quick announcement before we say the Nicene Creed together. If you want to participate in today, I, I forgot to make this announcement at the beginning. If you'd like to participate in today's Zoom Bible study, we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Today, specifically, we're, we're going to start working through Ephesians 4, which is one of Paul's classic texts about the gifts of the Spirit. Did I say fruit of the Spirit? I mean gifts of the Spirit. Uh, please, if you didn't receive an invitation already and you'd like to participate, uh, please send me a text or an email. You can find uh, my email address on the church website, and I'll send you out a, a link to join us. All right, now let's confess our faith, our Christian faith, with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Amen. So oh.